0: Yes. So we discovered that my son Sebastian was almost completely blind at the age of 15. And he was a straight A student. He was a straight A honor student. He's a genius artist who draws and paints with almost photographic realism when he wants to. He was on the water polo team and the diving team at his high school. We had literally no idea that my son had any disability of any kind. And so, yeah, it was quite astonishing. Um, to discover that my 15-year-old brilliant child who is scoring in the 99th percentile in both math and English on all standardized tests was blind and nobody knew.
1: Today's episode is an unusual one and it's unusual because today's guest's son is the only person in the world that is known to process his vision verbally, which means he sees the world like a bat sees with sound. And for 15 years, her and her husband and her son did not even realise that he was completely blind. The family had no idea and when she found out completely by accident at the age of 15, she was really terrified for her son's safety and overwhelmed with guilt for not knowing that her son was blind and really baffled about the impossibility of the situation how none of the doctors and herself knew that her son was blind. So she embarked on a journey to find answers and many years later, many doctors later and $150,000 later there was a diagnosis of cerebral cortex visual impairment. So this is her story, episode 100, Stephanie Juicing. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, to bring on the inspiration. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Seth.
0: Well, thank you, Fiona. It's so nice to meet you. I'm so, you. so grateful for this opportunity to be on your show with you today. Thank you so much for having me as a guest.
1: That's okay. You're going to be episode number 100, the big three digits.
0: Oh, wow. I feel special. <laughs> Thank you. you. <laughs> I now, do. I, I really do. I,
1: I came across your story, and it was one of absolute disbelief, I suppose, which I, I suppose you probably get that from a lot of people, and it's a story in regards to your your family but also your son as well, um, and that is that he is – legally blind? Is he 100% legally blind?
0: So it's complicated, as you can imagine. My son is the only person in the world known to process his vision verbally, which means he quite literally sees with words just like a bat sees with sound. And I'll get more into that later. But Sebastian actually spent six hours in the fMRI for Dr. Latvi Marabet at the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity at Sheppard's Eye Research Institute, um, which is attached to Harvard University. And um, Dr. Maribet actually captured Sebastian's use of verbal mediation to process his vision. And um, so we actually have fMRI scans of my son's visual cortex lighting up when he thinks words to himself and going dark when he doesn't. And actually, Dr. Maribet, who teaches ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School and is an associate scientist at Massachusetts Eye and Ear, published a paper on Sebastian's use of verbal mediation to process his vision in collaboration with Dr. Barry Cran, who is the head of optometrics at the New England Eye Low Vision Clinic at the Perkins School for the Blind.
1: Oh my goodness, so, that's a mouthful, staff. That is a yeah, mouthful so, and a half.
0: According to Dr. Marabat, my son, Sebastian, is actually the most researched individual with CVI in the world. CVI stands for cerebral slash cortical visual impairment, which is a brain-based vision impairment that's entirely different from ocular blindness. Why? When most people think about ocular blindness, they imagine that everything is dark that's actually a stereotype that's not correct. The vast majority of people who have ocular blindness have some residual vision of some kind whether it's just light perception or some small amount of vision. Very very few individuals with ocular blindness actually see nothing at all. But th- there are some, right? So CVI so the, or I just want
1: just before yeah. we get into the the depths of it, the most the, the unusual thing about your case is that your son was a late teen when you found out that he had this.
0: Yes. So we discovered that my son, Sebastian, was almost completely blind at the age of 15. And he was a straight was A student. Most, he was a straight A honor student. He's a genius artist who draws and paints with almost photographic realism when he wants to. He was on the water polo team and the diving team at his high school. We had literally no idea that my son had any disability of any kind. And so, yeah, it was quite astonishing, um, to discover that my 15 year old brilliant child who is scoring in the 99th percentile in both math and English on all standardized tests was blind and nobody knew. And so this was quite devastating. As you can imagine, we were astonished. And I'll tell you first, if you'd like to know how we discovered it, we were literally going through old photos. And I am that mom who made my son a baby book with his baby pictures and then discovered that I'm not crafty. <laughs> and then I never, never made another Picture like photo album again. I was just like, okay, I made one. I'm good. And so I was done. And so here's my, I am with my 15 year old son, and we were going through old photos that we hadn't looked at for years because I've never done anything with them. And I was narrating to my son who was in his baby pictures because our family's scattered all over and there's a lot of people that we don't see very often. And so I was saying things like, oh, look, there you are with your cousins from Canada. We haven't seen them for like seven years. And oh, look, there you are with our neighbors from the old house we used to live in when you were a baby. That we haven't seen since you were a baby, you know, and we had been doing this for about half an hour and please remember My son is an only child. So my brilliant genius artist has been looking at photos of his own face now for half an hour with me saying, oh, there you are, there you are, there you are with so-and-so. And then all of a sudden the cutest picture of him, we kind of migrated up into the toddler preschool years. you know. So he was about three years old and he just popped up on the screen and it was so adorable. And I said, oh, look, who's that? And there was crickets. And finally, he just said, how should I know? And in 2017, I had never heard of CBI. I had never heard of prosopagnosia, which is the medical term for something called face blindness. I didn't know in 2017 that it was possible for a human being to be face blind. I'd never heard of it. And so just as I'm right now, all the hairs on my neck and my back just stand up when I talk about this story. But I had no idea that this, how could this kid who paints such beautiful faces not even recognize his own face? I'd never heard that this was even a possibility. And so I just looked at him and I said, what do you mean? I'm like, that's you. And he said, if you say so. And so then I was like, that's not typical, right? That's not typical. And so I started quizzing him about other people in the pictures, myself, my husband, other close family members and friends that we see all the time. Right. And there we all are 15 years younger, you know, (laughs) and, you know, less gray hair and a little bit thinner, but still obviously us. And my son was guessing, not knowing for sure. And I knew like, that's not typical. And I wasn't scared, I was more fascinated and just like determined to discover what this mystery was. Because again, I'd never heard of CDI. I'd never heard of prosopagnosia. And so it was right before bedtime. So everybody went to bed except me. And there I was on my phone, Googling like mad, trying to find the right combination of search words in the Google search engine that would bring me up any information. And I was looking up problems with facial recognition and it was bringing up all kinds of irrelevant information about facial recognition software and, you know, things that had nothing to do with what I was trying to figure out and back in 2017 there was very little factual information that i could find about cvi and so eventually that night like at two o'clock in the morning i finally found the right combination of search words with difficulties with facial recognition or something like that and prosopagnosia popped up and i was like aha this is a real thing and back in 2017, the information that I found about prosopagnosia was incorrect. In my searches, I, was, I learned incorrectly that prosopagnosia or face blindness was a real thing, but it was very, very rare. Well, we know now the New York Times actually had an article just a couple months ago that one in 30 people have face blindness. It's a very common symptom of a very common visual impairment. And in fact, what we know now is that CVI is actually the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world. It is not rare. It's actually the number one cause of visual impairment, and it is more common than ocular blindness. Unfortunately, it does not have a diagnostic code. And so the vast majority that of medical professionals... What does a diagnostic diagnostic code mean? So when you go to the doctor with, for example, like the flu, it has a, a DSM code. And so when the doctor diagnoses you, they enter that into the computer with what it was you had. And so there's a code for every illness and every injury, that specific code. And that's how they keep track of what you have. And they don't have a diagnostic code for CVI at this time. They don't have an accurate one. And so the doctors don't get any training in what it is and they don't know how to diagnose it because they don't even know what it is. And so what happened to us the very next day, after we discovered that my son was face blind, we discovered that my son had taught himself to navigate by counting his steps and turns and had been navigating our own home that way since he was a toddler without anybody knowing he'd been counting his steps and turns to navigate our small neighborhood. And he went to an extremely architecturally complex high school, one of those which was you know, designed as an open concept school in the 1970s and then added onto twice by crazy architects. And you couldn't get from one third floor wing to the other third floor wing without going all the way down the stairs and across the building and back up the stairs. It was one of those crazily, just very difficult buildings, and he was navigating it by counting the steps and turns. And so in my readings the night before, when I had learned about prosopagnosia, I had also learned that one of the common disorders that goes along with face blindness is something called topographical agnosia. Topographical agnosia is an inability to recognize your environments. People who have topographical agnosia, it doesn't matter how many times they walk into their own home, into their own bedroom, any place, their brain does not create visual memories of the scenes around them. And so people with topographic agnosia cannot form visual maps of their surroundings, mental maps of their surroundings, because their brain doesn't create any landmarks for them for their brain to remember. And so everywhere you go, every single time, it's as if you've never been there before. Nothing ever looks familiar, ever. And so, so
1: from what you're describing to me and having – And the only information I have is from what you're describing to me. So excuse me, if I sound like an idiot and I am a functional moron. So hand in hand, Um, it sounds like he can actually see his brain just does not process and remember anything. So he's remembering the steps. He's not, he's not seeing an object in front of him that he would trip over. Like he would see that object and avoid it.
0: So, seeing is very complex and i'm so glad you asked this question because what you just said that he can see but his brain just can't process it that is one of my biggest bugaboos that I can't stand about oh, okay. the vision All right. world. So and let's so get the bug- let's because get
1: the I, bugaboos out. I love it.
0: I can't wait to talk I've about I've never
1: heard this. of the name bugaboos, but let's go Steph. Let's get it out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. I am ready for this one. All right. So last summer I attended a conference um, virtually with Dr. Gordon Dutton and Dr. Arvind Channa, who are both experts in CBI, And Dr. Channa was talking about how um, they've actually measured the amount of time it takes between when light hits the retina of the eye and is transmitted into an electrical signal and travels through the optic nerve past the lateral geniculate nuclei or the LGN to the back of the brain before there's any conscious perception of sight. Okay, so they've actually measured this using like, I don't know if it's fMRI or MRI, probably fMRI. And so what happens is when the light strikes the retina of the eye, it takes approximately one tenth of a second for that signal to be passed through that optic nerve, past the LGN, all the way to the back of the brain, before there's any conscious perception of sight at all. And what that means is that we do not see with our eyes. Our eyes do nothing really except collect light. They are light collectors. And then they take that light and turn it into an electrical signal. We do not see with our eyes. There's no conscious perception of sight when the light lands on our eyes. All of the seeing that happens consciously is in our brain. And there are people alive on the planet right now who have no eyes who can see. And I will talk briefly.
1: Hang on a minute. Get out.
0: Yeah, his name is Daniel Kish. He's a real person. Daniel Kish lost both eyes to cancer in infancy and taught himself to echolocate. And Daniel, when they put him in the fMRI, they have shown that Daniel's visual cortex lights up when he hears echoes, but not when he hears ordinary sounds. And in fact, Daniel teaches other blind people to echolocate. That's what he does for a living. You can certainly Google him. His name is Daniel Kish, K-I-S-H, and a very dear friend of mine in Iceland, who has CBI, had the honor of meeting him and working with him just about a month or so ago. So yeah, Daniel Kish teaches other blind people to echolocate like he does. And Daniel can ride a bike, even though he has no eyes. Daniel, you can take him to a place he's never been, and he can describe the visual scene. You, he can actually read if the letters are three dimensional. So, so what
1: you're yeah. a- actually advocating, really, is a change in terminology of what sight is, yes. really.
0: <laughs> Because our definition of legal blindness is 100 years old here in the United States, and it is out of date and completely not what we need anymore. Because the reality is more kids have CVI than ocular forms of blindness in developed nations. We're finding in our blind schools more kids have CVI than ocular forms of blindness, and it can be debilitating. I want to be really clear. We Got so lucky with Sebastian because Sebastian has visual access to numeracy and literacy. My son can read, and I'll tell you, it is very common for people who have CVI to have normal acuity. And in fact, my son started wearing glasses in first or second grade, I'm not sure, and my blind son passed every vision test every single year um, because he has normal acuity, he can read, and because our optometric exams are just decades out of date. They're just decades out on. of date.
1: So I'll bring you back to my original uh, the question that started off on the what is sight question. Yeah. If he can see numbers and letters, can he see a chair to avoid it in a room that he's never been in before?
0: Okay, so you, this is a complicated question. It's easier okay. for me to talk about what he can't see first, and then I will talk right. about what he can see. So okay. there's kind of actually three parts to your question, So and it's complicated. So let me tell you first a little bit about what CVI is. So CVI is caused by damage to the brain. And when the light comes through that optic nerve, when the um, the electrical signal is passed through the optic nerve to the back of the brain, that's where vision starts in the back of the brain. And then we have got two visual pathways. More than 40% of our brains are involved in visual processing. It's a huge amount of brain power that goes into seeing. So we have two different visual pathways. There's the dorsal stream. When I always think of like the dorsal fin of a shark kind of comes up the back of the brain and across the top and the dorsal stream of visual processing is kind of like, I think of it as like the where kind of part of visual processing And, and people who have damage to the dorsal stream of their visual processing centers often have difficulty in crowded environments. They might have difficulty finding a familiar face in a crowd. They can have difficulty in a grocery store where there's stuff all over the shelves, boxes and containers and I mean, just everything everywhere. It's impossible for them to just sort it all out. Children who have dorsal stream impairment might have difficulty finding their shoes in a pile on the floor, finding a toy in a overcrowded, you know, a toy box, finding a particular toy that they're looking for. And I think one of the best examples, if you, I don't know if you know the children's book, Where's Waldo, where you have to find yeah. a little Waldo guy, right? Yeah,
1: it's Wally out <laughs> here. Where's Wally?
0: Where's Wally, right? Yeah. People who have dorsal stream dysfunction find just looking at that, where's Wally, to be, it can actually be physically painful and uncomfortable just to even try to look at it their brains they just they can't see it it's just a mess and they just want to look away it's so uncomfortable so that's the dorsal stream the ventral stream is the part that kind of runs more through the middle of the brain and the ventral stream is involved in visual recognition so if you take your right hand and you touch above and behind your right ear that's where the right fusiform gyrus of your brain is and the right fusiform gyrus of the brain is where facial recognition takes place. People who have damage to the right fusiform gyrus of the brain very often have prosopagnosia or face blindness, which is what my, one of the many symptoms that my son has. He has many more. So, also very close. Together to um, to that where where the facial recognition takes place is where um, environmental recognition takes place, and so people who have face blindness very often also have topographical agnosia, and cannot recognize their environments either because those two things are processed so close together. When one area is damaged, it's really common for the other one to be damaged too. So different. Areas of our brain are involved in recognizing different things. And so people who have CVI can have very different symptoms because where the brain damage happens can be fairly random, right? And so if some people might recognize faces just fine and not be able to recognize words and letters and numbers, some people might not be able to recognize their environments and yet they can see objects just fine. Some people that might not be able to recognize objects, but they can navigate just fine because they can recognize their environments. Every single person who has CVI is unique. And as Dr. Gordon Dutton says, if you've met one person with CVI, you've met one person with CVI. Everyone's wow. different.
1: So it is really complex. How did you, um, he's obviously navigating though the world in a very remarkable way. If he's and his me- his memory must be, if he's thinking, okay, eight steps to go here, and then around the table or whatever in your home, and then he's mapping out um, uh, his school situation, his memory must be incredible to remember those sorts of steps and process and locations in that manner. I understand that he can't do it in terms of recognition, in terms of a place. <laughs> how, when you found out that he was doing it like this, have you ever had a discussion with him and how he initially does it when he find, like, goes to a new place?
0: So this was terrifying when we discovered this because, I mean, we went overnight from being the parents of what we thought were just very, very lucky, the parents, very lucky parents of a very, very academically and gifted kid and you know and then overnight we didn't know if sebastian literally we didn't know if he could ever live independently he was planning to go off to university in the city of Chicago. And here we were going, he's navigating by counting his steps and turns. You know, we can't do this without some professional training on how to navigate as a blind person, because we did figure out, and I mean, we had conversations over months trying to figure out all the ways that Sebastian's vision is different from typical and there's, we haven't even talked about all the ways his vision is different. I mean, I've mentioned face blindness and topographic agnosia, but it's actually a lot worse than that. So I want to be really clear. I mean, he has almost no vision, (laughs) almost none. So, um, so this kid, yeah, we talked about it and, and basically he was following us. I mean, he was an only child. And so, you know, we'd go around the neighborhood and he would follow us, you know, he just walked with us and he was an only child and he would just count his steps silently in his head when we went to a neighbor's house or, you know, to his friend's house and he just did it on his own. And I want to be really clear. Sebastian is brilliant. He actually scored a perfect 150 on the verbal portion of the IQ test without any preparation of any kind. He's always scored in the 99th percentile in both math and language on all standardized tests without any preparation whatsoever on our end. He's brilliant. And so he figured out ways to just get along. But that doesn't mean that he was okay. Because of my work as a CVI advocate, I know many adults and teens who also went misdiagnosed for years. I have a very dear friend in Iceland who just recently worked with Daniel Kish, um, who didn't get diagnosed until she was 26, and she's legally blind in Iceland. And for 26 years, she was treated as a typically sighted person. She has lower visual field loss, which means she's never seen anything beneath her nose, as well as other severe visual problems. I mean, she has ocular vision impairments as well. So she is blind. She's blind. And just like my son, she passed for for typically sighted and she was put in regular L P E classes playing soccer with no ability to see anything beneath her nose. Can you imagine? And so the reason I'm saying just, this is because... But, Steph, it, do,
1: you think, do you think in some regards that's almost a better thing because they had to have learned to adapt?
0: And I understand a,
1: that that may sound callous, but no. by, by you not knowing that your son was like that, he's adapted to sort of in you know quotation marks a normal world a normal sighted world and so therefore he has a he has developed these coping mechanisms the lady in iceland the same sort of situation she would have dealt with these sort of coping mechanisms my dad has um retinitis pigmentosa so i have some idea in regards to vision impairment and he has that was his was quite late onset so he's had to learn to adapt after being fully sighted young so i i can sort of see both sides where you you want to sort of help in some regards and it would be useful to know at a young age but there's also that really sort of throwing them out of the nest sort of so to speak and they've just got to figure it out how to fly um you
0: are so perceptive I'm so glad to be here talking with you today because you are so perceptive and I want to say I want to address this question really honestly it's a double-edged sword And I've had this conversation with my son and with my friend in Iceland and other people who have gotten misdiagnosed and and undiagnosed for years and years. And the reality is my son is so independent just because of exactly what you said. He was forced to figure out a way, right? He was forced to just figure things out, and so he is so independent, and I know for a fact, had I known that he was blind from birth, I would have been terrified for his safety, Mm. and I would have been very overprotective of him. I'm going to be honest about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a natural reaction, though.
0: There are so many experiences he never would have had. I mean, we used to go to Colorado in the summer for vacations, go rafting, whitewater rafting down the rivers. And we'd always stop in this one spot where there was this 50-foot boulder and, you know, they would invite people to jump off the boulder into the river. And my kid was the first one off the boulder, my blind kid, you know, (laughs) because he wanted to, right? Yeah. (laughs) If I had known he was blind, I would have been like, no way, right? No way. I just, and it's ridiculous because blind people can jump off a boulder into the river, right? (laughs) They can do that. But I would have been so afraid for him. And so I want to say it's a double-edged sword because the reality is knowing so many people in the CVI world who also went misdiagnosed for a long time, it is terrifying to be blind and to have absolutely nobody around you know that you're blind and do nothing to help you. It's terrifying.
1: Have you... uh Post-diagnosis,
0: mm-hmm. I,
1: I'll let you, sorry, I'll let you finish that train of thought and then I'll ask another one because I realize you haven't finished that. Sorry.
0: Oh, it's okay. I, I think I got that thought out. It's scary. And so yeah. the reason that I do this is to alert the world. It, I just, I can't imagine having what happened to our family happen to another family. I, I just can't because there needs to be a happy medium. We need to know these kids are blind. We need to provide them supports, and we need to not overprotect them. And we can do all of those things so that kids aren't tortured by being undiagnosed and being blind in a world where nobody knows they're blind, right? Mm. And get them simple helps that they need, like braille, right, or like a white cane. My son actually needed orientation and mobility with a white cane and he really needed it. And it was so difficult getting him a diagnosis. We haven't talked about that at all, but go ahead.
1: I to we, will get, to you, so. we will get there. I'm yeah. I'm interested in terms of when you did get the diagnosis, you would have, as a mother and a mama bear, I don't have children. Um, and I think it's important to, to note for this question, but as a mama bear, you would have been parenting, you and your husband would have been parenting a certain style in terms of allowing that independence, allowing him to jump off the boulders into the river, allowing him to do whitewater rafting, all that sort of, you know, independent kid stuff as, okay. as a going child. When you got the diagnosis and you realized the impact and the severity of his, um, limitations in terms of his sight. How hard was that for you to still not be overbearing and allow him this independence that he had developed by sort of having to adapt?
0: That's a good question. And I would just want to say it's a little backwards because we figured everything out at home regarding Sebastian's DVI and his verbal mediation to process his vision. And then it, we had the most horrific journey to get a diagnosis that I can, we had $150,000 in medical bills trying to get a diagnosis for a blind child who's always appeared to be typically cited, $150,000 in medical bills. We, the day we, the day after we discovered that my son was navigating by counting his steps and turns, I called his neuropsychologist who'd just done a full neuropsych bell on him for a totally unrelated concussion that he'd gotten in the fall. And I made an appointment and I was using the correct medical terminology to describe my son's symptoms from that very first appointment after we discovered my son's CVI. And the neuropsychologist said to me, I can't help you. And I don't know anyone who can. Good luck with that. And he dropped us and we saw optometrists and neurooptometrists and ophthalmologists and neuroophthalmologists and neurologists and neuropsychologists and we traveled across the united states looking for anyone who could diagnose my son's common visual impairment with his common symptoms and we were labeled crazy by the medical establishment and repeatedly verbally and emotionally abused Doctors at some point where they
1: were I they, were they thinking that you were making it up?
0: Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because my son, CVI can be an entirely invisible disability. There is no way to tell that my son is almost completely blind if you met him. Not academically, not socially, not physically. We my son has no ability to recognize faces, not even his own. And we have photo after photo of my blind son making regular, consistent eye contact from birth. Photo after photo of that. We have photos of my blind son using something called visual guidance of reach at a developmentally appropriate age and that's where you look at something and then you reach for it so we have photos of that and the reality is is that cvi is complex and my son there, there's two things we haven't talked about. You asked initially about, I remember you talking about, well, how come he isn't like bumping into boxes on the floor and things like that when he walks. The reason for that is because my son has something called, um, excuse me. I'm so sorry. My voice. <laughs> got that's, okay. My
1: that's okay. That's fine. Do you need to have a cough or go get a water or something?
0: No, sorry, I just had a little tickle. So my son has something called blind sight. Blind sight is related to the, the, the ability to see motion. And we've known about it for 100 years since World War One. In World War I, for the first time, we had soldiers coming home with gunshot wounds to the head and they had cortical blindness. They survived their, their gunshot wounds to the head, but they couldn't see, even though their eyes were technically fine. And so for 100 years, we have studied and known about blindsight Blindsight is the ability to move through your environment without any conscious perception of what you see, but without bumping into objects. This is not news to the medical and science community. We've known about it for a hundred years. This is old news. So my son has blindsight and there's a really great article for your listeners on, um, we have a station called NPR and there's an article about a woman. It's called the blind woman who saw rain. And I can give you a link to put in your show notes afterwards for your listeners. But it's about a woman who uh, had a stroke as an adult, and she lost all perception of light, everything. doctor said, you're blind, you'll never see anything. And then some weeks went by, and she noticed that she could see the movement of the rain on the windshield when she was out walking with her daughter she could see the movement of her daughter's ponytail as the girl skipped ahead of her she couldn't see the ponytail she could just see the swish of the hair if that makes any sense and there's yeah. I'll give put, put a link and so you have to remember that vision in the brain is not all or nothing it is not the stereotype of all it's lights on and we see everything or lights out and we're blind there is a million gradations of what each separate piece of vision motion is processed separately from the ability to see light right the ability to see faces is processed separately from the ability to recognize words letters numbers and simple shapes that's processed separately from your ability to recognize objects That's processed separately from your ability to recognize environments. And so you can lose pieces of your vision without losing all of your vision. And my son has really severe vision loss because he's lost so many pieces of his vision. And yet he still retains the ability to process movement. He can recognize colors and he can recognize words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes. Those are the only things that my son can recognize like a typically sighted person can. He can't recognize faces, he can't recognize places, he can't recognize objects, he can't recognize biological forms, he can't recognize his own hands, face or body. And so he's wow. very, very severely visually impaired. On top of that, my son has another symptom of CVI, which is actually a very common symptom of CVI called simultaneous. agnosia. And what that means is my son's visual fields are full. When you put him in the visual field machine to determine how mm-hmm. much of a visual field he has, it always comes out normal. So son- we,
1: we should probably discuss what a visual machine is. A so visual machine is, uh, well, my understanding I've had it before and so correct me if it's the same thing you literally put your chin inside sort of a an egg-shaped dome and it does dots and lights and you're meant to keep your eyes straight and sort of see your peripheral vision in regards to the dots and the lights and it's to see how wide your vision scope is.
0: That is a wonderful description. Thank you. And I don't actually remember what the technical name for that machine is, but it tests your visual fields. And sometimes it's lights. Sometimes it's a little wiggling motion. It's looking to see if you can see the motion. So my son can see light. He can see motion in that area. But the way my son describes his vision is he says his vision is like being in an alien planet where nothing ever looks familiar except for words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes. And so wow. he has to guess who and what every single thing around him is all day long based on their verbal characteristics. And so before I had cataract surgery a couple of years ago, I used to wear glasses all the time. And so my characteristics used to be tall, blonde glasses. And when my son thinks those words to himself, he quite literally gets a momentary glimpse of what I look like in the fMRI at the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity. We, I mean, they literally took pictures of my. Son son's visual cortex lighting up when he thinks verbal characteristics to himself and going completely dark when he's not. In other words, my son is actually the only person in the world known to be able to choose to see or not see with his eyes wide open. And in fact, my son spends most of his waking hours with his vision off because in addition to CVI, my son has another condition called central auditory processing disorder, which is CVI's auditory cousin. And what that means is my son can technically hear sounds just like my son can technically see light, but people who have CAPD or auditory processing disorder can have difficulty or find it impossible to translate the sounds they perceive into recognizable language. It's just garbled. And so for my son, because he has to silently think the verbal characteristics of everything around him in order to get a glimpse of what it looks like, he has this silent narration going on inside of him all the time, and if you try to imagine what it would be like, if you were trying to listen to like a physics lecture on it, like string theory, but at the same time you were silently reciting I don't know the Declaration of Independence or something to yourself at the same time. Imagine if you had to silent re- silently recite some gigantic poem to yourself silently and also listen to a physics lecture, right? It would be impossible to really get anything out of the lecture. So that's what my son is doing all the time. And so in order to minimize that, he just turns his vision off. So he's not seeing anything at all. He's not narrating to himself so that he could focus on the conversation or the lecture. And so it's actually, we're learning more and more that people who have CVI very often also have CAPD or auditory processing disorder. And I think that one of the greatest tragedies of our time is the failure of our medical and scientific communities to recognize deaf blindness as a spectrum disorder because i consider my son to be on the blind spectrum he is severely visually impaired to the point of total blindness most of his waking hours and he also has difficulty hearing he can't hear well and see well at the same time and so to me, that puts them on the deaf spectrum. And this is a common problem for people who have CVI. And that's why I'm here today to talk about this. And I'm just so grateful for this opportunity. I'm just can okay. thank you enough. That's all
1: right. So explain to me how you got the diagnosis. So you're $150,000 later, which, can that's- I just say, the Australian system is – not great in Different. terms of medical, but I don't think $150,000 would we rack up just trying to get a diagnosis. Um, yeah. uh, it, how did you get it if you were going to pillar a post and, and no one was able to give you any answers?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, we were labeled crazy. We were treated like we were criminals trying to get illegal narcotics. And all I was asking yeah. for was for a couple of weeks of orientation and mobility training with a white cane for my son who's blind. And we were so treated did you like get, monsters. Did you
1: get? Did you get thrown that it was, that you were crazy? You know, the condition where the mums think that there's an issue with their kids and...
0: Munchausen. Is it Munchausen? Yeah. Yes. Mm. And I'll be honest with you. I'm actually a survivor. My mom actually had Munchausen by proxy. I know exactly what it is. And I am a survivor of life-threatening child abuse. I was repeatedly and deliberately abandoned beginning when I was four years old. I came home from my first day of kindergarten in a cop car because my mom didn't bother to show up and she repeatedly abandoned me. And so I know intimately and deeply what Munchausen by proxy is. And I have a very loving and supportive relationship with my husband. When I was pregnant with my son, we made a very careful, conscious and carefully decided decision. Um, decision to end my relationship with my mother with the help of a very highly qualified therapist because it was unsafe. There was no safe way to have my mom be a part of my baby's life. And it was devastating, but it was the best decision that we ever made. And I made a conscious decision to break the chain of generational abuse. And so my son was raised in a loving, caring home and protected from that. And so it was absolutely devastating then to be, have the insinuation of being a Munchausen mm. mom. And believe me, it was insinuated more than once and in front of my son. So it was horrible. And so you asked how we actually got the diagnosis. Hang so- on, so
1: before, before you, I, I do want to get that, that, but when they're insinuating that, mm-hmm. given that history, what is your response? to that doctor
0: oh my gosh it was so devastating I can't even tell you so a lot of things happened with a lot of different doctors and I will tell you one story Um, I was physically threatened by a neuro-ophthalmologist we'd never even met he came into the exam room and put his fist in my face and screamed at me in front of my 15-year-old son with his fist in my face. He didn't even introduce himself. We had never met. We had no conversation. He burst into the room and screamed at me and threatened me in front of my son. And he was screaming, tell me how it's possible he can recognize letters and numbers and not faces. It's all the same channels well, we know it's not all the same channels. There's a lot of research showing that they're not all the same channels. And so, yeah, it was pretty devastating. And So what
1: um, did you do in that scenario?
0: So I was raised in an abusive home, obviously, and yeah. I didn't do anything. I'm ashamed to admit I cowered. I well, sat that would, there.
1: I, I don't think that's a shame. That's it. a trauma response. And also I think it's a natural response when you've got a man shaking a fist in your face as a woman like that you would be like what the hell
0: well it was a very small room and there was no way out I mean he was blocking the only entrance right so I sat there and cowered and I took it and finally I just said you explain it to us you're the doctor right we're here asking you how it's possible (laughs) right You know, so that's, that's eventually what I managed to choke out. So it was always horrible. I mean, it was just so it's humiliating. It's beyond humiliating. So... Uh, doctor 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 lots of doctors lots of very awful situations and insinuations and you know and being made to feel like a crazy person and f- we were told that we should put my blind son on a bike in heavy traffic and enroll him in driver's ed and that antidepressants would cure his vision and that we needed family counseling and i mean i can just go on and on with the crazy things that we were told if i had listened to those doctors my son would likely be dead now
1: how did you, you imagine? how did you have the strength to keep going in the face of the medical uh, industry, I suppose, let's, let's paint them with the whole brush, really turning them back on you and not giving you any answers?
0: There are two pieces to this. First of all, because I made a conscious decision, to stop the generational, generational abuse in my family. And I was actually raised by a mom and I survived that childhood, which I mean, I consider myself lucky to be alive, to be honest. And so I was highly, highly motivated to not let them label me as that because I'm not number one. And secondly, I do think that there are angels that walk on this earth and our angel's name is Lucas Frank. Lucas Frank is um, one of the lead directors at the Seeing Eye Guide Dog Organization. And about a day or two after we discovered that Sebastian was navigating our own home by counting the steps and turns, I called the Seeing Eye because, and I'll tell you, I'm embarrassed about this. Back then, when we first discovered Sebastian had CVI, I knew nothing about blindness, and I knew nothing about guide dogs. I was just but terrified. that's not
1: but that's not embarrassing. That's unless you're having a requirement for that, most yeah, people no. wouldn't
0: maybe embarrassing isn't the right word maybe I'm just confessing I don't know I just didn't know I was, I was lie ignorant. on the couch, Steph. Yes, I was ignorant of blindness I was yeah. ignorant of guide dogs I didn't know anything and I called the seeing eye and I talked with a lovely lady there her name is Pauline Surf Alexander on the phone and I took I just spilled this tale out of discovering that my son was blind at the age of 15 and I'm sure I sounded like a lunatic and she was lovely on the phone and she asked me a really good question. She asked me if he was bumping into things. And I was like, no, he's never bumped into things, you know? So I'm like, this was just, a, we had no idea how any of this could happen. Cause remember, I didn't know what CVI was, didn't know anything about it. And so she said, well, probably a guide dog wouldn't be a good C- Solution for him, because she explained to me, which I probably would have thought myself and figured it out for myself if I hadn't been so desperate and scared. But she said, you know, a guide dog's job is to keep you from bumping into things. and So if your son isn't bumping into things, it will just be a $50,000 pet. Right. And it's, you know, you and I was like, oh, we don't we don't need to take a guide dog, a $50,000 guide dog away from someone who actually needs it. You know, and plus we're all allergic to dogs anyway. Right. So, you know, so it was a very nice conversation. And I was like, oh, that totally makes sense. Of course, he, you know, if he's not bumping into stuff, he doesn't need a guide dog. And I never thought I'd hear from the seeing eye again. Except a couple days later, the phone rang and it was Lucas Frank. And Lucas had heard about my desperate phone call. And he called and we spent quite a lot of time on the phone and he asked me questions about how we'd figured out that Sebastian was blind and he was, we were already in a doctor's appointment or two into the crazy land. Right. And he treated me like I wasn't crazy. And he asked good questions and we talked about everything we'd figured out in just a few days and how severe our concerns were for Sebastian's safety. And, he gave me, he talked to Sebastian on the phone. He spent quite a lot of time with Sebastian on the phone, asking him how he was navigating and he took him seriously. And then he got back on the phone with me and he gave me the names of some wonderful resources at the Chicago lighthouse for the blind Tom Persky and some other people. And he recommended that we reach out to them for help with navigation. And that was the end of the conversation. And I just thought, well, that's the nicest thing ever. And I thought I'd never hear from him again because I'm like, what else could you give, right? I've
1: gone all goosebumpy. What a wonder! But that was off the the kindness as well, and of the receptionist that took your initial phone call, saying, you know, I, I've had this mother on the yeah. phone and and just mentioning it, you know, right? Oh, uh, and that
0: wasn't the end. Because as we went through this whole nightmare of trying to get a diagnosis, I, you know, I never expected anything from Lucas at all. And then some months went by and all of a sudden I get a phone call and he says, Hey, I'm gonna be in Chicago for a conference. Do you want to have dinner? And by that time, we had been thoroughly labeled crazy and things were totally disastrous and the, you know, the insinuations were everywhere. And I was pretty desperate. And I said, Yes, I would like to have dinner with you. And Lucas is a really well known guide dog trainer, he works with the deaf blind and he teaches deaf blind people how to get around using a guide dog. He actually travels the world and helps set up guide dog centers internationally. So he's internationally known at what he does. He's just a phenomenal person. And so he came out to Chicago for this conference and we had dinner at a local restaurant and he did an informal orientation and mobility assessment on my son at the restaurant and he just asked my son how he was getting around and my son was honest he said I'm counting my steps and turns and I can see the sign for the restroom over there to get to the restroom because remember my son has visual access to numeracy and literacy he can read he has normal acuity and so he could see the sign even though he can't see the table or the faces or the people or the bags or you know he can't see any of that and so he can figure out a path using his blind sight he doesn't crash into things because his emotion perception allows him to travel through space without banging into things, just like that woman on NPR, the blind woman who saw Ray, right? And so he's traveling through the restaurant, explaining, I'm counting my steps and turns. And Lucas is taking him seriously. And he's, you know, one of the first people that's taking us seriously. And it's just like someone else sees what I see that navigating by counting your steps and turns is not typical for a sighted person, right? This is not how sighted people navigate. And so I'm like, and he's seeing it and, and believing it. And so it was so it gave me strength. I was like, I'm not alone. Someone else sees what I see. Right. And I'm not crazy. And so things, you know, he, Lucas was wonderful and kind, and it was just rewarding. And we got a cute picture of them standing out in the parking lot, you know, and then, and they went back to his life. And then we thought we had the best doctors in the world lined up for our next appointment and everything just went awful I was going to swear but I pulled it back so it oh no awful. go
1: swear swear Steph swear, let it out
0: <laughs> I was gonna say, we, we were having a rough time let's just say that oh my goodness oh. a rough time you did and
1: pull we, back still Steph
0: we came <laughs> back from the worst doctor's appointment uh just devastated I was ready to just just give up. I'm like, what else can we go? I mean, these are supposedly the best doctors in the U S if not the world, you know, whatever. And, um, and I was just devastating, just devastating. And the next day the phone rang and it was Lucas Frank. And he said, I talked with Jim Deremaic at, um, the John Hopkins eye clinic. He wants to talk to you right now. And Jim is the head of rehabilitation at Johns Hopkins Eye Clinic, and I got on the phone with Jim, and he was so kind, and he donated a $150 course, an online course on CVI, so that I could be a better advocate for my son. And that was over um, Memorial Day weekend in um, May of 2017, and I took that course over the weekend, and I got an A in CBI. Well done.
1: <laughs> I think you've like got a, a six... doctorate in it now. <laughs>
0: I think I should get an honorary PhD for sure. Oh my gosh. So I took the course. And then on Tuesday morning after the holiday weekend at like nine o'clock, I'm emailing him going, okay, I got an A. Now what do I do? Right. And even with the course, which obviously confirmed everything we suspected about Sebastian's vision. And now I had even more, you know, accurate medical information at my, you know, and my, just the ability Finger to tip. describe everything that's mm-hmm. wrong, right? And even with that, we still couldn't get a diagnosis here in the U.S. And so I was like, okay, well, if we can't get anyone here in the U.S. to listen to us, I'm going to find someone outside the U.S. And I thought, oh, well, the course I just took was taught by Gordon Dutton. Professor Gordon Dutton, who's in Scotland and is one of the best CVI experts in the world. And I said, I'm just going to track him down and find him. Good (laughs) on you. Searching him out on LinkedIn. And I finally found him through this wonderful website CVI Scotland is considered by experts to be one of the best sources of factual information about CVI. It's all research-based, it's all accurate, it's phenomenal, and it's free. And so if you're listening to this podcast today and you're thinking, oh, I've always thought there was something odd about my child's vision, but they said it was autism. It might be CVI. So, or whatever, right? So anyway, CVI Scotland, and I sent them an email briefly describing our disastrous lives. And a couple days later, I got a very kind response from Dr. Gordon-Dutton saying, how can I help you? And it was like stepping into it, like through the looking glass, like we just went from the nightmare into like normal personhood again. And I was like, somebody was kind, you know? And Dr. Gordon-Dutton introduced me to Dr. Sylvie Schokron, who is one of the leading vision and brain researchers in the world she's the director of the um i think it's the unit of vision and cognition at La in rothschild in paris france and dr gordon dutton and dr shokran arranged to do a week-long research study just on sebastian and so how
1: amazing Steph! how amazing
0: It was such a lifesaver, and I'll tell you why it was so important. One of the reasons we had such a difficult time getting a diagnosis for Sebastian is because he has a normal appearing MRI scan of his brain. And we were repeatedly and incorrectly told that there was no possible way he could have a neurological visual impairment and have a normal appearing MRI. Well, the reality is more than 10% of people who have cerebral palsy have a normal appearing MRI and yet they still have cerebral palsy wow. and they believe that the percentages are about the same for CVI. Because brain damage can actually be microscopic and still have enormous changes in the brain to the function mri only measures the structure of the brain it doesn't tell you anything at all about how your brain is actually functioning and so when we got to paris dr chakron had very kindly arranged for my son to have something called a spect scan a spect scan is a nuclear medicine test that measures blood flow to the brain any areas of the brain that are not receiving blood flow that's dead tissue And we discovered that my son had extensive brain damage, including to the right fusiform gyrus of his brain where facial recognition takes place um, because I almost died giving birth to him. My son was full term and three days before he was due, I was diagnosed with preeclampsia. I went straight to the hospital where they induced me and I coded from the epidural. My blood pressure crashed to 40 over 26 and I was a code blue and the last thing that i remember is the anesthesiologist in my face saying it's okay close your eyes and then i was out gone and i got the six centi of epinephrine in my heart and i was unconscious for the next 6 hours of my labor when i woke up i was paralyzed from the chest down and the nurse was pressing on my stomach saying do you feel a contraction and i was like i can't feel anything you know and My husband was there the whole time and there was a fetal monitor in my son. And according to my husband, there was no fetal distress, which is why I did not have an emergency C-section. So about two hours after I woke up, I gave birth to my son vaginally and I was told that my son had a nine on his APGAR score, which is excellent. And I was told I had a perfectly healthy baby and I took him from the hospital home from the hospital, believing I had a perfectly healthy baby. And I want to be really clear here. Large numbers of children who have CVI are severely developmentally delayed. My son had all normal developmental milestones and took the training wheels off of his bike when he was four and he's been riding around our neighborhood blind on his bike ever since. So we had no idea there was anything wrong with him. And I believe that the reason my son had such good results, there's two things. First of all, I'm an early childhood music and movement specialist. There are more than two decades of research, hard research demonstrating that high quality music and movement experiences before the age of seven have tremendous neurological benefits. And those include better balance, coordination, proprioception, which is knowledge of where your body is in space that comes in handy when you can't see your own body, right? Also, um, fine and gross motor skills, auditory discrimination, language development, reading and math ability, and IQ. There's research demonstrating two decades of research, more than that actually now, showing that music and movement together are the only activities known to science that activate the visual, the auditory, and the motor cortices of the brain at the same time. Music is the only activity known to science that forces both sides of the brain to work together through the corpus callosum. They've known for more than two decades that the brains of musicians are actually different from the brains of non-musicians. We musicians have more and better connections between the right and left sides of our brain because we are musicians. And so my son received intensive music and movement therapy from birth just because I think it's fun. I had no idea that he had, had basically had a stroke, you know, but right before he was born, I had no idea. And so I treated him like he was a healthy baby and I bounced him with fun songs and I danced with him when I was happy and we did finger plays and body awareness rhymes, and we marched around the house to John Philip Sousa marches, you know, (laughs) just, I had fun. I had fun with my baby and throughout the day, every day I exposed him to music and movement and rocking and bouncing and twirling and all the things that music, early childhood music and movement specialists do. And he had that every single day throughout the day, just for fun. And then my son had all normal developmental milestones and we have photo after photo of my son looking perfectly, typically sighted. And we had no idea. And there's another thing I'd like to talk about. We know for a fact that my son quite literally taught himself to see with words, using art. My son memorized, he memorized the verbal characteristics of everything he encountered and everyone around him by drawing, painting, and sculpting them. And it started with the Teletubbies. (laughs) i don't know if you know the teletubbies i do yeah (laughs) Tinky winky and poe and all of that and oh my gosh he painted and colored and drew the teletubbies over and over and they have such simple characteristics when you think about it you know like red circle and you know purple triangle or whatever you know whatever the characteristics are but they were really simple and easy for him to grasp and he colored probably thousands of them and painted them and made them out of Play-Doh. I mean, just everything. And it got to the point where my son quite literally, I mean, he can draw and paint with photographic realism now. And he's almost completely blind. And so, I mean, we just, he actually got the presidential award and scholarship to the school of the art Institute in Chicago, which is the highest award that they give.
1: That's amazing. Um, did you want me to leave that in? Because you were saying that you didn't want to.
0: Oh, he's not there now. You can go ahead. Oh, and okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Steph doesn't want her locations of her son's school and everything. No, so, and that's fair yeah. enough too. Um, yeah. Let's go back to the di- that week of diagnosis over in, I'm assuming it was in Paris or Scotland?
0: So we went to Paris to meet with Dr. Paris. Shokhan. I've actually never in person met. Dr. Gordon Dunn, we have, we have obviously, you know, zoomed meet, zoomed met several times, you know, and he's absolutely lovely, lovely person, you know, but I've never met him in person. And so we came home from that trip to Paris with hard evidence that my son had brain damage to the visual processing centers of his brain right and and that's when we were finally able to get help and we were able to connect with um dr barry cran who is the head of optometrics at the new england islo vision clinic at the perkins school for the blind in boston and also with dr latvi Marabet, who runs the laboratory for visual neuroplasticity at shepin's eye research institute and so dr Marabet actually it was incredible he paid for our expenses to fly us out to Boston to participate in the research study and for our hotel. The research study paid for that and he met us at our hotel and got a luggage for us. <laughs> he was So kind to us and on the phone before we went I'll never forget I was crying on the phone to this man I've never met about everything that happened and he said these were Dr. Maribet said to me he said i'm sorry that should never have happened to you and i lost it i just lost it i was bawling on the phone with a total stranger that i never met and i said that's so kind and he said that's the only decent response
1: you know the interesting thing though Steph is with you and maybe you're a lot more gracious than I am I would want to ring up every single one of those doctors that I went to that dismissed me that told me I was crazy or whatever and give them an earful you know or report them to the medical board particularly that guy that had these fists in your in your face like
0: there were some reports made. yeah there were there were some reports made good Absolutely. on you yeah well and then I also wrote a book
1: <laughs> What's the name of your book, Steph? Let's plug it.
0: Oh, gosh, thanks. Uh, my book is called Eyeless Mind, like the mind's eye. It's a play on the mm-hmm. mind's eye because my son has no mind's eye. So it's called Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen. And it's the true story of how a music teacher made a major medical discovery in the field of visual neuroplasticity and the horrific medical malpractice and abuse we experienced trying to get a diagnosis for what turned out to be a common visual impairment.
1: Mm. Well, I'm glad that you've written the book. I'm, I think it's gonna help um a lot of other parents. So let's go back. You're in Chicago, you rocked up to Chicago. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm sorry, say the question again. I missed something.
1: Let you we were you were going to Chicago and he was you'd gone to Chicago was it Chicago?
0: No, we when were you near up? Chicago. Oh now, uh, for the for the laboratory for visual neuroplasticity, that's in Boston. We went to Boston. Oh for okay, that.
1: Boston, sorry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We live here near Chicago. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you went to Boston and that's where they were so um, kind in terms of the research and helping you in – yeah. Yes. I just
0: wanted to say, Sebastian spent six hours in the fMRI that first time in March of 2018 for the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity. And that's where Dr. Maribet documented Sebastian's use of verbal mediation to process his vision. And he published a paper in collaboration with Dr. Barry Cran at the Perkins School for the Blind in the um, journal Neurobiologia. And I would be happy to give you a link to that so you can put it in your show notes as well. So your listeners Thank you. will know this is a true story this actually happened and so So
1: what what did that give you that paris did not give you i mean i know that they they did the um the scan and showed the brain damage in terms of the blood flow but that was that was probably a day's worth of scan you were there for a week what else did that show you compared to um, boston
0: so the fMRI is different from an MRI. An MRI only shows the structure of the brain, not the function. Whereas an fMRI is a functional MRI and it shows what the brain is actually doing. So when we were in Paris, we had the SPECT scan which showed the blood flow to my son's brain and that showed that my son actually did have brain damage after we'd been told repeatedly that he couldn't possibly have brain damage because his MRI was appeared to be normal, right? So we had proof that my son had brain damage. Now, when we got the fMRI scans in Boston, that's where we were able to actually see that my son sees with words and that he can actually turn his vision on and off when he's not thinking the verbal characteristics of the things he's looking at. And so we actually have fMRI scans and you can see it in the paper that was published in neurobiology. They actually have them in that paper showing that my son's visual cortex lights up when he thinks words and not when he's not it actually goes dark and so like daniel kish remember we talked about daniel kish who echolocates my son has unique visual processing just like daniel kish does daniel kish's visual cortex lights up when he hears echoes but not when he hears ordinary sounds so daniel kish echolocates to see He's literally seeing with echoes, whereas my son is literally seeing with verbal descriptions. He thinks words about what things look like to himself. He has to memorize how we describe things look and then think those memorized descriptions to get a, just a fleeting glimpse of what something looks like. And I'll tell you, it's just a flash of understanding. It's just a flash. There's no retention, in visual memory, nothing. He just gets a glimpse. He says he gets an idea of it and then it's gone. It's just a little flash. And so the fact. No, go keep Oh, I just wanted to say the fact that my son actually developed a neuroplastic adaptation to his neurological visual impairment did not cure my son's CVI. There's a lot of misinformation about CVI out there. There's a lot of wishful thinking. There's a lot of, oh, well, I saw your child looked at something, so that means he saw it. Or that you know, he he was able to name that this is this red thing is a ball, so that means his vision is normal now, <laughs> right? CVI is caused by brain damage, and there is no cure for brain damage. And yes, I think we know for a fact that my son literally taught himself with art to memorize the salient characteristics of everything around him so that he could identify them, but it didn't fix his CVI. He didn't become not blind. My son is blind. He just has this unique ability to get flashes of vision using words. But his CVI is very much still there, and he's very much still a blind individual.
1: How does it work? And you may not even know the answer to this. If he gets flashes and he has to think think words and therefore he gets a flash of imagery, how Mm -hmm. can he how does it work when he is then drawing a picture perfect image like a picture
0: <laughs> i think it's that gonna be one of the great medical mysteries of all time to be totally honest i don't really fully understand it myself. that's okay
1: <laughs> i said i don't think you might know the answer to this i just had yeah it's fascinating yeah. the brain's fascinating and people in terms of I find it fascinating. I mean, I'm not having to yeah. deal with it every day like you, Steph, so I don't have the emotional um uh attachment to obviously the, the situation, which I think would be terribly stressful, but um it's that fa- it, it is, is nonetheless fascinating.
0: It is. I think it's fascinating, and I think one of the saddest things is the amount of fear that we encountered from low vision professionals, both in the educational and in the and med- the medical realm, that there just there seems to be this tremendous fear of the unknown. You know, mm. regarding CVI.
1: Well, it and- challenges them, doesn't it? It challenges their their education. It challenges what they should know. It challenges. Um, that status quo and if new things are being developed that they don't know about, then it's threatening, I suppose, to their
0: Thank you for expertise. that. Yes, I think it was mm. extremely threatening and it's sad because we actually have research coming out now showing that one in 30 students in a regular education classroom has symptoms of CVI, which means that CVI is actually more prevalent than autism in developed nations. This is... My son is not unique. My son is not, this is not just some weird thing that happened. This happens every day. And that's why I'm here telling my story, because we have got literally, I think we've got millions of kids right here in the U.S. who are undiagnosed, and don't know that they have CVI. And it's it's just tragic, I think.
1: Tell me, it sounds, from what you have described, it sounds like similar and again, I'm not a medical professional. I don't have any uh, expertise in terms of autism. But it sounds like as autism is, has a scale in terms of severity, it sounds like CBI also has a scale in terms of severity and, uh, and different symptoms. Is that correct? I
0: think, yes. I, well, I'll say, first of all, like I said earlier as Gordon Dutton says, if you've met one person with CVI, you have met one person with CVI. The outcomes for people with CVI can vary vastly. And a lot of that has to do with what other conditions the child or the person has. The reason we have so many people who have CVI right now is because our NICU care, which is, you know, our emergency.
1: Neonatal intensive care.
0: Neonatal, yes. All that, that, that care has improved vastly over the, last couple of decades and now we have all of these teeny tiny preemies who did not used to survive who thankfully now are surviving and it's it's a miracle but what happens is they're very very at risk for brain bleeds and so we have all of these tiny newborns teeny tiny preemies and they very often have epilepsy they have cerebral palsy and they very often also have cvi those things go together and we got incredibly lucky my son has cvi he's got central auditory processing disorder i mean that's very common with cvi as well it's again like cvi not well known and understood and not well screened for right so but it so yes there's this massive range on how severe the symptoms are because there are so many complicating comorbi- comorbidities, right? That can happen with it. And as I said, we got super lucky because my son can read. It's common for people who have CVI to have normal acuity. And my son has visual access to numeracy and literacy because the parts of his brain that recognize words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes are not damaged. And so my blind son was actually reading and teaching himself to write at the age of two and a half. He was reading those original Nancy Drew stories with all the lawyerly language, Mm -hmm. those chapter books that I remember struggling with. Yeah, I love those. And I remember struggling with them as a second, third grader. My son was reading and understanding them when he was four. Wow. So he was identified as highly gifted very early on, and nobody knew. And in fact, my son actually skipped a grade. The school came to us when he was in third grade, and his gifted teacher told me that he had finished the fourth grade math book first quarter of third grade without anybody helping him. We didn't even know he'd done it, so we hadn't been coaching him. And they said that there was they could not meet his needs academically in the grade he was in. And we actually fought the grade promotion for social reasons. We didn't know any of the kids in his, the the grade above him in our neighborhood. We have kind of a small neighborhood and most of the kids in his school came from actually a different town. So we didn't actually know any of the kids in the grade above. So we were not thrilled about throwing him into a different grade, but the kids he didn't even know, right. Taking him away from his very close friends that he had in the grade he was in. We weren't excited about this. And so we sought alternatives. And grade promotion turned out to be the least bad of the three choices. Our school gave us, and we ended up acquiescing, but we did it very carefully and slowly over a six month period. And it turned out to be beautiful for my son. So it worked for us. So I will say that, but so I'm saying, if you know anything about grade promotion here in the U S it's a very thorough process, it's fairly rare and they look at every aspect of you academically, socially, psychologically, physically. They look at your status in the family, whether you're a first child or a middle child or an only child. They look at everything. And my blind son sailed through the grade promotion process without raising a single red flag or a concern from anyone. He was listed as very athletic by his PE teacher because he is very athletic. <laughs> I mean, We had no idea. Nobody knew. It was completely nobody knew. So this has been a real shock to our family, and we're really glad to be on the other side of it. And there was a point (laughs) that I was going to get to, and i have forgotten where I was going with this. (laughs) Oh, my goodness.
1: Um, That's okay. It's a story of my life as well, Steph, so don't stress about that.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. I'm so glad I'm not alone. I'm just rambling here. Just, you know, (laughs) enjoy the ramble. (laughs) How...
1: How did it, I mean, obviously relief would be an understatement and that's, a, I would say, standard, but how did it change having that diagnosis and having a few medical, um, well, be it obviously the, the, they sound like they're the best in the world, um, but how did it change your relationship with the medical profession when you had people that were taking you seriously and then for, had this diagnosis?
0: So that's a really good question. And it's one that I have never, I don't think ever talked about publicly, like on a podcast before. So this might be hard for me to talk about because I've kept it pretty private. Sorry, this is hard.
1: That's okay. Take your time.
0: After we came back from Boston and we had hard evidence of the fact that my son not only had CVI from the, like you said, the best vision and brain specialists in the world, we had hard evidence in the form of fMRI scans that he literally was seeing with words and you know, <laughs> it was from the most respectable, most respected people. and. Um, I just wanna say it was very difficult because we eventually were forced to come forward publicly with our stories to clear our names, which is why I wrote the book. There's two reasons I wrote the book. One was because even with that hard evidence, we were still labeled crazy. And my son, I don't wanna go into the details, but he had a very severe medical incident that summer before we went to Paris. Um, He developed an illness that was very severe, and we could not get him appropriate medical care for two years. Two years, and we knew what was wrong with him, and his symptoms were classic symptoms of that condition, and for two years, we begged and searched, and they would not do a simple blood test on my son because I had, quote, over-medicalized my son. And so I felt forced to come forward with our story publicly to clear our names because I was afraid because I was labeled as well that my son would never get treatment. He would never be able to access proper medical care unless we did. And in addition to that, once I took that course on CVI that I talked about, that Jim Deremeyak had set me up with, that's when I learned that CVI wasn't at all rare. We had been repeatedly told that, oh, face blindness is so, so incredibly rare. There's just no possible way your kid could be face blind. And that's when I find out that it's a common symptom of a common visual impairment, and there's nothing rare about any of this, right? And that I knew that I could not, if this was happening to my family with the gaslighting and the medical malpractice that it could not just be happening to us it has to be happening to a lot of other people and i was right and being an activist now in the cvi community i know that this happens every day all the time even with children who very obviously have cvi in my son's case his his verbal visual processing allows him to pass for typically cited he looks like he's typically cited right but A lot of these people, it's pretty obvious there's something off with their vision. It's pretty darn obvious. And even when it's obvious, these families have difficulty getting a diagnosis, they have difficulty getting the educational supports that they need. And so that those two reasons, that's why we came forward, we felt like we had an obligation to come forward and prevent this from happening to other families.
1: At the start of the conversation, you mentioned that part of the problem is that there's no code, so therefore it's not educated enough in terms of the medical. Even though it's so common, it's not not enough education that's happening in terms of um, doctors and I would say eye specialists as well. From what you have said, how do you how does how does it get a code for the? I just, I'm assuming it's for your insurance companies over there and and so forth.
0: Yes, we're very backwards with our insurance companies here in the U.S. I'll just come out and say that. And I think that's we are the reason that there's a problem here in the U.S. because of that. So um, I want to say flat out things are so much better than they were back in 2017 when we discovered Sebastian at CBI this past summer for the very first time. Perkins hosted the CVI collaboration for change conference, the Perkins School for the Blind in Boston. Um, and at that conference, they had Dr. Michael Chiang, who is the director of our National Eye Institute as the keynote speaker. And The National Eye Institute is a division of our National Institute of Health, our NIH, which is our national health organization. And so for the very first time in our history, we had the attention of the NIH, and and they are working on getting a diagnostic code. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm optimistic that it will be happening hopefully in the new future, near future. And so this is a huge step because for the very first time this past year, our National Institute of Health has recognized that CVI is indeed the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world. That's a huge change from claiming that it's very, very rare. <laughs>
1: well, yes, yeah, it's a complete 180, isn't it?
0: right so they have actually recognized it as the number one cause of visual impairment the nih has so this is real and in addition to that our national institute of health has identified cvi as an area of interest which means for the very first time in our history cvi qualifies for federal research dollars this just happened this past year yes so yeah, there's been a lot of people working really, really hard trying to make some changes.
1: You are one of them, Stephanie. Wow. <laughs> Thank
0: you. I think I play a pretty small part. There's some really amazing people on this
1: team. No, but sometimes so. it needs an angry mama bear poking, you know, poking the system to rattle some cages to to make it happen. You know what I mean? Like, it, oh it,
0: yeah,
1: a lot can happen with a really motivated individual.
0: Well, and I always feel like shame is a powerful motivator. And when you shine the light on the cockroaches, they like to scurry away. (laughs) (laughs) That's (laughs) funny. It is so unacceptable what's going on. And the thing that angers me the most is once I took that course on CVI where I learned so much more about CVI than what I had just learned from my online research, a lot of it, which was inaccurate. You know, I really learned about CVI, the real medical and scientific causes of it and everything about it. And after that time, once I understood the common symptoms of my son's common visual impairment, I was able to create simple screening assessments for my son's CVI, in under a minute in my kitchen and I'm a music teacher my son yeah. could have been quickly and easily screened as a three year old if anybody had known how and so I am calling for universal screening for CVI for all preschoolers, because CVI can be an entirely invisible disability. We have one in 30 students in our regular education classroom who have symptoms of CVI. Research is telling us this. And so there's no way to tell if someone is blind by how they appear to you. Just because someone appears to see what you see doesn't mean that they do see what you see. Just because someone can move through the environment without bumping into things, that doesn't mean that they're not blind. My son is blind, and we've known about Blindsight for 100 years. This is not new information.
1: Stephanie, how do people get hold of that um, quiz?
0: Oh, the actual class that I took? I don't
1: no, think well, the, no, the Not so much the class. He oh. says you developed a quiz in your kitchen. No,
0: it's, it's not a quiz. It was just a book and a pencil. And I had my son at ah. it And, you know, yeah, I used a book and a pencil and tested my son for simultaneous. agnosia. And, yeah, it took me less than a minute to do it. And, I mean, for example, another common symptom of CVI is lower visual field loss. I think I mentioned this with my friend in Iceland who can see nothing beneath her nose. Plus, she has a whole bunch of other problems as well. That's just one of her symptoms, right? So think about that Then you go to the eye doctors and they're like how many fingers am i holding up right if you just hold them low <laughs> right you could test yeah. for lower visual field loss by just holding your hand down low <laughs> like this this is not rocket science this is not brain surgery this is really pretty easy to screen for in my opinion so and i mean and you have to be aware that every person who has CDI is different like my friend in iceland has lower visual field loss My son's passion does not have lower visual field loss. So, you you know, you have to be aware of the complexities and the uniquenesses of each individual. You can't say, well, this kid doesn't have lower visual field loss, so they don't have CDI, right? Each person is unique.
1: I think that's part of the problem. It is, each person is unique. So, therefore, it is hard. You know, I think people like to say, okay, this is the cookie cutter sort of test, and this is the cookie cutter um, solution or outcome from that test. If you can don't have say a cookie Can that I criti- love you?
0: Can I just say this right now? Because. <laughs> oh, you, you can say it as
1: much as you want, Steph.
0: <laughs> I love you. I just love you because that is exactly the problem. The cookie yeah. cutter assessment where everyone with CVI is XYZ and black and white. And yeah, it's just crazy.
1: But I so. think from a, from an educational point of view, it makes it difficult because how do you then educate for a million different scenarios in terms of a million different types of tests? That someone, you know, I'm just saying a million, whatever. But yeah. if it is so – yeah, and I don't have the answer to that. I, I, I And I agree and I acknowledge that there needs to be more than just a standardized uh, CVI test. I don't know what that would look like. I'm not a medical expert, and it sounds like the medical experts are also struggling with it as well.
0: Well, I'm really proud to say that the Perkins School for the Blind has created a new assessment for CVI called the CVI Protocol. It's still in development, but it's completely research-based. Everything is research-based, and it will be accessible to people online. Amazing. So this is yes it's amazing and i'm really really proud to say that the research paper that was written about sebastian by dr cran and dr Marabet is part of the research supporting the cbi protocol at perkins and so um it's an amazing thing and there's there's changes coming and i wanted to circle back to something if we have time
1: yeah of course um, we do circle back as much as you want
0: okay so i wanted to talk about i had kind of got distracted when we were talking about how Sebastian can recognize words and letters and numbers and simple shapes and basically nothing else except for colors. Right. And so um, and how lucky we are that just by random luck, my son's the areas of his brain that recognize words, letters, numbers, symbols, that area was undamaged. And I wanted to talk about a very dear friend of mine. who discovered that her daughter has very severe CVI. And in fact, I think her vision is actually worse than Sebastian's and Sebastian's is really bad. Um, uh, I think it was I think it was a year and a half ago. I'm not sure of the exact date. Anyway, this family is brilliant. The mom is a musician and an educator and the daughter is brilliant. And like many people, with CVI, they discovered it when she was 13 years old. And my son was 15. So, again, this happens a lot where people discover it very late. And um, this child is homeschooled. And again, the mom is an educator, absolutely a brilliant person. And the daughter is brilliant, extremely, extremely f- verbally expressive and able to describe exactly what's going on with her vision now that she knows that she's blind, like my son, right? So, this family has been struggling to get this child to read for the entire educational process. And the mom has done every bit of research about dyslexia and has tried every research-based dyslexia intervention known to man with this child unsuccessfully. And then when this child was 12 years old, they discovered that she had CVI. And this child does not have visual access to numeracy and literacy because this child cannot recognize letters. Despite years of efforts of tracing the letters, feeling the letters, doing all of the dyslexia interventions, this child cannot form a visual memory of a letter at all. And so they started Braille. I think it's been about a year And for the very first time, this child is reading at grade level because she has Braille. And it just, I don't know, it just, I wonder how many other kids are out there who are struggling to learn. You know, we know we've got one in 30 students in a regular education classroom and who have CDI and how many people whose lives could be fundamentally made easier and better if they could just use Braille instead of struggling to read things that they cannot actually see.
1: If, if people think that their kids may have some sort of issue with their vision, what would you recommend their first protocol would be?
0: If you, well, for, I want to say it is very common for people who have CVI to go misdiagnosed with autism. It's absolutely possible for people to have autism and CVI. You can have them both. Absolutely. But it's also very common for people who have CVI to be misdiagnosed with autism, or just to have it not be acknowledged at all. They're also routinely misdiagnosed with um, emotional and behavioral disorders, the whole, you're just crazy and imagining that you can't see thing that we experienced, right? And then they're often just misdiagnosed with learning disabilities, like my friend's daughter was. And I mean, this is a brilliant child who is not learning disabled. She's blind. She can't see the words and she needed Braille and now she can read a grade level and she's brilliant, you know. So um, I think if you suspect that someone in your family or someone you know might have symptoms of CVI or you want to learn more about CVI, there's a couple of things you can do. There's the CVI Scotland website that I talked about. This is overseen by Professor Gordon Dutton for factual, medically, and scientifically accurate information. It is considered by experts to be one of the best sources of factual information about CVI. It's free and it's very layperson friendly, which means that, I mean, any ordinary person who doesn't know anything about CVI can go to this website and read about CVI and get factual, easy to understand information. And best yet, they have videos. They have numerous videos about what it's like to see with the brain of someone who has CVI and they have many of them because as we talked about, every person with CVI is different. So you can't watch one video and say, oh, I get it. That's what it's like to see the CVI. They have several of them because there are different different modalities of the way it presents. So there's videos you can watch there. Another wonderful source of information is the Perkins School for the Blind. They have a CVI Now page on their website and um and they have all kinds of classes you can take to learn about cvi you can um again and it's very family friendly and so there are places you can go i would go to the perkins school for the blind website i would go to the cvi um, scotland website first those would be great sources of information that's accessible and easy to understand and i'd be happy to put links for that in your show notes for you too so people can find it
1: quickly Thanks, Steph. Yeah, that'd be great. The name of your book again?
0: Oh, yes, my book is called Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen.
1: And how do people get it?
0: Uh, You can get it on Amazon.
1: Perfect. Thanks, Steph.
0: Thank you. It was so great to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity.
1: No worries. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them.